All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. From the second epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This Sunday, the fourth Sunday in Lent, is often called Laetare Sunday or Mothering Sunday. It is called Laetare Sunday because in the old Latin liturgy, the first word sung in the Roman gradual on this Sunday was Laetare or Rejoice. As in, Rejoice, O Jerusalem, and come together, all you that love her. Rejoice with joy, you that have been in sorrow that you may exult and be filled from the breasts of your consolation. There's the Mothering Sunday part, of course. This Sunday has often been called Mothering Sunday because it was a day when people would return to their mother church, where they were baptized to remember the beginning of their Christian life, the day when they became children of God and members of Christ, inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. It was a day to rehearse and remember well their conversion. And I say all of this to underline the distinct change in tone on this Sunday, from sorrow for sin to rejoicing and exultation. Gone for one Sunday is the great litany, which I know to many of you is a relief, <laughs> but which I know some of you love and miss already. But in many churches, purple vestments are exchanged for rose ones. If any of you want to see your priest wearing rose vestments, uh, $8,000 ought to do it. <laughs> and all of this is set in place not only so that you and I do not become weary in the midst of this Lenten season, when our high hopes for spiritual renewal have likely been dashed, or when we are not making the progress we thought we could, we are led back to the font of our own inheritance, led back to discover our place as heirs afresh, to be made aware once again that by the grace of Jesus, you and I have been adopted into the family of faith. And without his grace to amend our lives, we would not be able. At the center of Lent, and indeed the Paschal Mystery, is not the idea that you and I must reconcile ourselves to God. That's not what Paul's talking about this morning. That is the theological provenance of the heretics. It is instead, as Paul puts it in today's reading, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The initiative for salvation does not lie within us. It is the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. And that is one of the reasons I love having this window that we have behind our baptismal font. Have you ever taken a look at it as you come down just look, look at the glory of that window. The words of Jesus from Revelation come to mind. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. This offers us a catechesis, as it were, in what conversion looks like. Not that we must knock at God's door, but that he knocks at ours. And what I want to say this morning is that this is very much in, embedded 
in the parable told in the gospel reading today, one that is perhaps the most familiar of the Lord's parables, the parable of the prodigal son. But what often happens when you preach on the prodigal son is the message is this, get it right, repent. And I want to suggest to you that that's really the wrong way to start out if you want to preach well on this parable. Many have said, and I must agree with them, that the name of this parable should be changed from the prodigal son to the all-forgiving father. Because he is the focus of this parable. Not his wayward son, and not even his hoity-toity older son. For it is the father who stands out in the story. It is a story about him. And that is what I want to focus on today. The father and his character in the face of a child who sins against him, which shows us the character of an all-forgiving God. What I want you to do this morning as we consider this story is to, in a sense, play out Mothering Sunday in your own soul as you hear this story retold. If you can remember the day of your baptism, make a spiritual pilgrimage there for a moment. How did it feel as the water came over you? What did you hear? If you can't remember that day, think of a time when you most acutely felt the grace of the Lord, a time when you found yourself being deeply converted. If you can't think of either and none of that resonates with you, think merely upon where you are right now at this very moment. Perhaps wrestling. Perhaps in a time very much in the wilderness of sin. Maybe the pig pen makes sense to you today. You're feeling very far from God. Simply let that sit with you. This parable today begins by saying that it is a story about this man, the father of two sons, and that the younger son asks for his inheritance in advance. This would have been a great blow to this father. The younger son is essentially saying, you know, my life would be a whole lot better if you would just drop dead. So give me my money and I'll be on my way. I hope none of you fathers have ever, ever have that happen to you. Perhaps some of you have. I've known men in my parishes who have faced this exact thing. A son storming off in anger and not coming back who remains deeply estranged. It's a curse that is not easily lifted. It's an offense not only against a father, but against God's perfect law. The son has done the exact opposite thing of honoring his father. For a Jew hearing this story, and that is who is hearing this story, Jesus is telling this parable in the midst of those who accuse him for being around, for merely being around tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners. This story would have shocked them deeply. The father is apparently still able-bodied, but it was the children in those days who had to make provision for their parents' retirement. And this son simply asks for his part, which would have been about 10% of the whole, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. And when the text says that the father divided his living between them, there are a few possibilities. Conservatively, it would have meant simply that each of the sons will receive a portion of the income from the family ranch, and the father would receive nothing. Living as a ward of the older son, essentially pushed into an early retirement. More dramatically, and I think more likely, it could mean that the father liquidates his possessions, 
with the older son buying a smaller portion from the father so that the father could pay the younger son off in cash. In fact, I think this is what happens. It's what accounts for all of this huge sum of money going with the son out into the wilderness. So let me just go through that once again. The father essentially becomes poor without possession. He becomes dispossessed. And the older son, in order to make way for his brother to get cash, buys the younger brother's part from him and pays him off. This helps illumine why the older son was so deeply disturbed by the younger son's return and by the way that the father treats him. The younger son desires to become merely a servant, a slave of the family ranch, another mouth to feed, another drain on the son's wealth. But more about that later. The next part of the story is very familiar to us. The younger son runs out of money. He goes into a far country. He lives, as some translations say, riotously or dissolutely. He spends all of his money on loose living. And he winds up, during a time of famine, living in a pig pen. For a Jewish boy, that is to say, he has reached rock bottom. I love what J.K. Rowling said about hitting rock bottom. You know, she wrote the first Harry Potter book in a cafe while she was living in her car with her two children. She says this, rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I built my life. Maybe you've had a similar day. What I think we can see in this story is that the son becomes aware that he doesn't have anything apart from the father and his love. That even though the father has nothing now, not legally anyway, the father's merciful love is better than living with pigs. And Jesus uses this simple, simple phrase, when he came to himself. When he came to himself. The son's sobriety about himself begins with an honest reflection upon what he has become, who he has become but also an honest reflection about who he is and who he has always been. I loved what Hans Borsma said here last week, last Sunday, about sin as a kind of forgetfulness and the need that we have for remembrance. The son, for a good long time, before he even left home, forgot who he was, and he needed simply to remember. Now let me interject here that in Lent, we begin by remembering. Remembering what? That we are dust, and to dust we shall return. We have to sit with that for a long time. It needs to become clear to us just who we are. So that later we can remember greater things, namely the redemption that is ours, so that we do not forget it. The whole of Lent, in fact, culminates in the Easter Vigil, which sits in hours upon hours of remembrance of God's saving deeds. And so remembering all of this, remembering all that his father had done for him and all that he might do in the future, the son heads home. His remembrance directs his future action. And while he is at yet a distance, what happens? The father sees him. The father has been waiting, watching, sitting on the front porch in hopefulness and in expectation. 
We can only imagine his prayers. We can imagine his daily distress. He has been written off as an old fool, and yet he cannot let go of his son. People don't just get over these tragedies. No matter how far gone your children go, you will always remember how their heads smelled when they were babies. How they would say sweet things to you, even though they no longer do. How they would toddle through the house. And so all you can do is wait and hope. At the end of the day, the father is either going to see his son come over the horizon walking, or he's going to come over the horizon in a box. The first brings rejoicing and exultation. The other brings mourning, and there's nothing you can do about it. But note this. The father is not one who has chased after his son. He doesn't violate his deepest freedoms. He does not even show anger or distress. He simply says, fine, son. It's yours. It's yours. But he has already made up in his mind and in his heart to forgive this boy. He's already done it. See the love of our Heavenly Father. He endows us with every good gift. And when we squander it, when we forget him, he waits patiently. And yet it is not the return of this son which brings about the father's mercy. He already had that. It is not the return that brings about this rejoicing in the father. The father had already bottled it all up and was ready for this very moment. And so the father runs, he embraces his son, and he kisses him. Pharisee hearers of this parable would have been shocked by this statement. This ritually unclean pig of a son comes in from a Gentile nation, stinking of a whole lot of things. And the father not only runs, but embraces this dirty, lost child. This story for Christians became one of the prime narratives of how we understand what God has done for us. The son is reconciled to the father, not by ritual purity, but by familial bond. Restored through the repentance of the son, not only made possible by the already forgiveness of the Father. Note what the Son says here. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. So first he has this confession. He has not only sinned against the Father, but has sinned against heaven. He's sinned against God himself. He has dishonored this great gift of a loving Father. He has wished his own father dead. He has left his father without possession. And the son simply says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This term worthy is the Greek word axios. It's the term used for the saints in the Greek church. It's even used for God himself. And this is where things take a turn. The father, having already forgiven his son, shows us that he has already done one more thing. He's determined to honor his son because he is a son. The father calls for a festal robe, for his signet ring, the power and the sign of his authority. 
and for shoes to be brought and put on his son, for him to be clothed not as a servant of the house, but as an heir, as a prince. The image we should have in our minds is that of a guy with mud on his face and dirt on his brow and sweat all over him, a guy who stinks to high heaven, and he's put in a festal robe. a gold ring on his finger and shoes on his feet on his blistered, dirty, disgusting, calloused feet, shoes. And the old man calls for the fatted calf, one kept for a very special occasion. Who knows what it would be, but the father knew. And we find out later why he does this. He says... It was fitting. It was fitting, he said, to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This word for fitting is normally used in Greek like this. The king is visiting. Let's slaughter the fatted calf. The queen is coming. We're not having hot dogs tonight. The president is coming to town. Let's roll out the red carpet. It's fitting to do so. That's what fitting means. It's about equanimity. It's about equity. In short, the manner of reception fits the dignity of the visitor. Linguistically, this term denotes that there is a kind of equity which is demanded, which is ethically responsible to give. This son doesn't deserve Jack. He himself says he is unworthy to be called a son. But that is precisely what happens. He is restored and better than that. The father calls for these things without even the right to do so. I actually think this. I think the father doesn't even own the fatted calf anymore. He doesn't own the robe. He doesn't own the signet ring. That's all his older sons. His place in the household has been given over to the older son, and the older son has turned cold to it. We could say a great deal about this older brother. In fact, I'd love to preach a 10-part series on the older brother. I won't do that today. But today I simply want to say that the older brother shows us as a foil to the father, the magnanimity of the father. The son does what is expected. He is as cold and as ruthless as we would expect. He does what I would do. If it happened to me, I would say, you get that wayward Blah, 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 out of my house. He can't be here. I don't want my kids to see him. I don't want any of it. Get him out. He doesn't belong here anymore. And you should know that, being the one he mistreated, Dad. It's like that. I am certain that some of the hearers of this parable would have identified with the older brother, not because they saw themselves in him, but that they were cheering him on. 
Good for him. He does what is right. He's a moral superior. Good for him for holding the family line when the old man has lost his mind. But the father's compassion and love, his desire for restoration and reconciliation are indeed what is fitting because this boy is a child of God first and not a sinner first. He's a child of God and he can never be anything else. If you and I only knew the compassion of our loving heavenly father, we would absolutely lose it in this place this morning. absolutely lose it. We would be indignant and angry and we would say, Lord, we've served you so faithfully and you choose to love sinners. You choose to love prostitutes and tax collectors and IRS agents and meter maids. You chose to love the guy who sleeps on our stoop. It's not right. We might also say, I'm not worthy. It's not right. You you can't love me that much. It's not right. You shouldn't, don't love me like that. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. It's not fitting. But we might for a time... Consider just what we would be today without the Lord's compassion upon us. What kind of inheritance we would have from the Father who loved us even a bit less than he does. Because here's what we see in the mystery of redemption. Here's what we will remember in the days to come in the Paschal mystery of the death and resurrection of the very Jesus who tells this story to illustrate why he is hanging around with sinners, with tax collectors, and with prostitutes. He is saying, I'm about to go as far as I possibly can. Holding nothing back, reserving nothing for myself, to become absolutely poor and abject because I love you. What we see is that the cross is not about a partial solution for a problem which could be set right in some other way, but about the seeking of the most abundant and complete reconciliation possible. Not just about forgiveness of sins, but to be with God forever. And Jesus, in pain and agony, turns to that thief and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. He is speaking of welcoming a son back. And every time this happens, every single time, there is rejoicing in heaven and there are shrieks of misery and despair in hell. Do you know, beloved, how much Satan despises you? I mean, despises you. How much just the very vision of you being here this morning makes him insane. He sees you as a worm, unworthy to be loved, a despicable object which the Lord of all somehow inexplicably yet loves. 
For you to begin to see the truth of the matter is the beginning of his undoing. When you and I can see the absolute goodness of the Father, especially in the face of our own sinfulness, and how this is not opposed to the holiness or transcendence of God, we begin to be set free from the chains of sin, and we find that the life of repentance proper to the Christian is not full of mourning or of shame, but of joy and rejoicing. I mean, we should not feel shame when we repent. We should feel shame when we sin. And joy when we repent. We should not feel unworthy to be reconciled. But know ourselves simply to be this. Sons and daughters of the Most High. Reconciled all the same. So this morning what needs to be said is this. With Paul. With the whole church throughout time. Be reconciled to God. Whatever binds you, whatever enslaves you, whatever brings you shame, the Father's love is stronger and it is sitting there waiting for you. Actively willing you to come. Whatever keeps you far off, the Father's love can reconcile you. Whatever keeps you away, whatever keeps you feeling like Nothing I ever do will be good enough. Whatever keeps you feeling like I'm doing this same darn thing over and over and over again, why? Oh. Know the love of the Father. Know it and come back to it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.